Welcome to Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry mm -hmm. College campus. We have a real treat for you today. We have Edwin Wilson on our program. He is known as Mr. Wake Forest. We're coming to you out of the Emory and Henry College campus, but another well-known college is Wake Forest University. And Mr. Wilson, Edwin Wilson, I will tell you, is an icon. I'll say that in a very positive sense. If you come on this campus, people will say, first of all, that they love him and that he has been a leader here for many, many years. So we're also going to talk some poetry today about World War I. I heard him read not too long ago down at the uh, Methodist Church, and he read some beautiful poetry and some very insightful poetry about World War I. So Edwin Wilson, welcome to Poets and Writers. Thank you, Henry. It's good to be here. Well, now, as we like to Good to have you on the Wake Forest campus. Thank you. It's always good to come here. Now, as we like to ask on this program, and you know, being from the South, we like to ask where you're from, and we'd like to know a little bit about you, Edwin Wilson. Huh. I grew up in a town called Leakesville, North Carolina, about an hour's drive from Winston-Salem. Leakesville was one of three small towns, Leakesville, Spray, and Draper, that in the 1960s, merged to become Eden. So most people know my hometown now as Eden, but I still know it as Leakesville. And I've lived in North Carolina almost all my life. Well, you grew up there and you had some teachers and do you, who influenced you there in Leakesville, now known as Eden? Well, I had splendid high school teachers. I've long been a strong advocate of public education. And I can't imagine that I had a better training or could have had a better training anywhere than at Leakesville High School. I remember one woman in particular, her name was Helen Jones, and she taught me English and four years of Latin. And after studying with her, I felt I was ready for college. She knew literature, she read it with skill, and she inspired students. And I had other teachers like her in Leakesville. Well, now this was during, was this during World War One? Uh, what era was this when you went to high school? Was well, I went to high school in the 1930s. All right. Just prior to World War Two. Okay, I, that's where I was confused a little bit. I remember at the poetry reading you did on World War One, you were talking about how you would salute the flag and, and the patriotism and so yes. forth. Yes, yes, yes. All right, now, along that line, now you, you're you known as Mr. Wake Forest, and why do you think people know you as Mr. Wake Forest? And I don't expect you to be modest, but it, part of it has to do that you started out with the old Wake Forest University. I think part of it is longevity. I went to Wake Forest College as a student in 1939 and went there for four years and graduated. I was in the Navy during the Second World War, and came back to Wake Forest, and then I went to Harvard to get a PhD, returned to Wake Forest in 1951. So I have the unusual experience of having spent all my life since high school, except for three years in the Navy and four years in graduate school, at Wake Forest. And so I had the advantage of uh, studying and teaching on the old campus, living on this campus, and so I experienced the history of Wake Forest. And somehow maybe that led to that particular designation. 
I'm not the one to say, but part of it has to do with uh, there are not many people who have been around Wake Forest as long as I have well, who, and have loved it anymore. I, I know. Who were some of the professors at the old Wake Forest who influenced you? And, and you and Bill Friday went there at, at one time. I think he went there. We were there about the same time. Bill came to Wake Forest to begin with. He transferred to NC State because he wanted to study a form of engineering that was not available at Wake Forest. So he did not graduate at Wake Forest. However, his three younger brothers, Dave and Rudd and John, all went to Wake Forest, and they were my friends. And uh, so I've been close to the Friday family for a long, long time. Well, then you came on up here to the Wake Forest University. And by the way, uh, folks out there listening to WEHC 90.7, Poets and Writers, coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, Wake Forest and Winston-Salem has a direct connection to Emory and Henry College because R.J. Reynolds attended Emory and Henry College. I did not know that. Well, I, I discovered that by one of your writers here. Uh, she's a, a Southern historian, and she has a book called uh, R, um, Catherine and R.J. Michelle Gillespie. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. we want to get her on the program you should before long. Her. Exactly. Yeah. So I was reading her book, and lo and behold, it said that R.J.R. went to um, Emory and Henry College, and he must have gone there a couple of years. Yeah. And then he decided that what he would do is he would uh, go to business school, and that's what he did. Then he came on down here, mm. and he started a um, you know tobacco company here in yes. Winston-Salem. But Southwest Virginia and Bristol, those Reynolds boys were all up through there. Mm. So I, th I thought that was interesting. Oh, well, that is. I had to put a plug in yeah. for, for Emory and I'm Henry College. You, you know, I like Emory and Henry. Uh, yes, and you've mm. been on Emory and Henry College. I have, yet. several times. Several, and Robert Denham is, is right. one of the people. Bob Denham and I have been friends for a long time. Yes, and I, mm. I interviewed Bob a couple of weeks ago. Mm. About a week ago, as a matter of fact, and, and we talked a little bit about you. He's doing well, I hope. Yes, he is. He, yeah. he started that printing press there. You know, published yeah. a lot of authors and uh, uh, many people. And I think your wife as well yes. included in that. But, okay, I, I want to get back to your experience here at Wake Forest and coming on up here. This this campus was put here in when, 1950? It began being built in 1951. took about five years for planning, and then we opened the doors in 1956. Not nearly as large as it is now. Many of the buildings you see now were not here in 1956. But we had enough buildings to start the college and become very active actually in summer school of 1956, our first classes. All right, and you came in. You talk. Uh, you had been to Harvard at that time. Now you went away. Ahead. You went away to war. Talk a little bit about uh, what you did. With well, the when I was when I was a student, there was a draft, and I knew in my senior year that I would be drafted into the army, and so I decided because I had two older brothers in the army, and I knew what they had been through, I decided that I would join the navy. So I volunteered for the navy. The Navy allowed me to graduate because I was just 20 years old. Mm-hmm, right. And I went to midshipman school and got a commission and was in the Navy for the three years of World War II. 
All right. Now, where where were you stationed in? The I was in the Pacific most of the time. Most of the time. I was in the battles of the Philippines and Iwo Jima and Okinawa during the last part of the war. And so uh, I was on a destroyer escort and uh, had a very colorful and exciting time in the Navy. Fortunately, our ship was never hit. I was never in any real danger as things turned out. And so I value the experience of having been in the war because many lessons are learned, I think, in talk that a, way. Talk a little bit about it. You were a young man. You went away to war. And what did you, how did you come through that? And what did you learn from that? I think mainly I learned something about what I would call the active life. I had been a very bookish boy, had tended to read a great deal had never had much experience outside my own college and outside my own world. I'd never been to sea, had never been on a boat, and all of a sudden I was confronted with a requirement that I try to undertake the duties of, a, of an officer in the Navy. One has to learn very quickly under those circumstances. Taking courses in seamanship and navigation and trying to find out about what life on the sea is like and about what life during war is like. And one learns very quickly when that is required. Well, I've been reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's experiences yeah. in World War II. And you know, he, uh, Hitler had him killed there at yes. the end of the war and he yeah. uh, resisted. He was a theologian, a Lutheran theologian, but he'd studied in the United States. And, and, and this is a philosophical question on poets and writers today, but what, what, what do you think causes war? Why, why do people go to war? I understand that's a complex question. It is an extremely complex <laughs> question, which I dare not try to answer. Obviously, many men have in them a great desire for power. Power and wealth, controlling other people, I think we see it in every country at different times in the history of the country. I think we see it sometimes in almost every religion. And it isn't surprising that we sometimes see it in individuals. What prompts a Napoleon or a Hitler or a Stalin or right now Putin in Russia, what prompts that person to want to exercise control over other people, I'm not wise enough to say. But when the effort begins to want to control other people, then there's bound to be some kind of resistance among those who don't want to be controlled. And so you have then the inevitable rivalry among people who seek power or glory of one kind or another. And it seems to be built into our human nature. It certainly goes as far back, doesn't it, as Cain and Abel that was pretty much at the beginning. Cain was not his brother's keeper, and his successors are not their brother's keepers either. And so all through history, this has happened. So it's been going on for a long time, and, and um, yes, we, we see examples of that. I, I know that uh, um, 
you know, Germany and comes to mind in, in, in Bonhoeffer's work, but I, I know that, uh, I believe it was the psychiatrist Betelheim said there was a little Nazi in all of us. And I, I, I suspect that's true. I think how yeah. we control it and enlighten people. And I guess mm. being at this great university is a way of having insight and, and, and sharing democratic principles and creating young minds who inquire and question. I hope that's true. I think it's true. Um, I said earlier how much I believed in public education. And I think if there's anything important now about North Carolina, it is that we reemphasize the centrality of the public schools in our lives. And that, that goes on down to the public universities too, Chapel Hill and UNCG and all the rest, and to the private schools like Wake Forest and Emory and Henry. Well, let's come. Let's come back and talk a little bit about your teaching. Now, you are you are loved as a teacher as well on this campus. You were an English teacher, correct? And, yes. And what did you teach here at Wake Forest? When I started out teaching, before I became an administrator, I taught the whole array of English courses: freshman composition, major American writers, major British writers, just the full course load that an English teacher gets. When I went into the administration, first as dean of the college and then as provost, I had to cut back on my teaching because there wasn't time, obviously, to be a full-time teacher and a full-time administrator. But I did decide that I didn't want to give up teaching and that even though I was going to spend most of my time in administrative work, I would teach at least one class every semester. And typically, I taught classes in poetry. Usually in the fall, I taught the Romantic poets of English literature, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Keats, and Shelley. And then in the mm. spring, I taught another course in poetry, usually William Blake, William Butler Yeats, and Dylan Thomas. So my classes were in poetry. Well, those are some great ones, and well, Dylan Thomas as well. I was well. fortunate to have them to teach. Right. They still have power and resonance, I think, even among contemporary students. Well, you mentioned Dylan Thomas, and, and I, I, the poem comes to mind, Do not go gentle into that good night. Yes. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Beautiful poem. Did you teach that one I to did. the students? And, uh, I did. I, I think he wrote that about his to his father. He did. He did. Yeah. And you, my father, there on the sad height, bless, curse me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Yes, he did. Do not go gentle into that good night. You know, I think it, it had special meaning to me. I uh, share this uh, quite open and share a little bit of, uh, too much about myself on this show. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wilson. And, and uh, you know, when I, I went through uh, heart surgery, you know, and uh, but I, I did tell my cardiologist and my surgeon that I, I quoted from Dylan Thomas, and I said, I'm not going gentle into that good night. Yes. So it's, good. it's interesting how we learn something, and we, we never know where we're going to apply it. I know yeah. it. I know it. So you came and you were teaching. You went up to Harvard now, and you got your doctorate. I did, came, yes. Yeah, that was before you came here, correct? And, right, yeah. yeah. And, and so you were teaching, and, and you met your wife on this campus. I that? did. And, and you had your wife, Emily? Is, is it? My wife came here to do graduate work, and then she remained to teach in the English department. And she and I met when both of us were in the English department. 
Well, I know downstairs when you, as I like to uh, tell my, uh, used to tell my students and, uh, you know, uh, but I've always felt there are three things you can't go wrong. Not that I wanted my students in an Irish bar, but I always said there are three places you can't go wrong. And that's a college library, a minor league baseball field, and an Irish <laughs> bar. And I, I dare, like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I dearly love coming here and coming to uh, any uh, campus. I love college libraries and uh I uh, I love coming here and downstairs. You know the women poets are on the wall there. Yes, and and I think uh, your wife started that, didn't she? She so, did. Yeah. What is that about? She is talk a little bit about that. Well, my wife has been active as a poet ever since she was a young woman, and I think it was in 1992. I may be wrong about the date. Uh, Emily was in charge of uh, preparing a conference here for North Carolina writers. And it was decided to make women writers the uh, focus of that conference. And she began to prepare a list of women writers from North Carolina. Anne Mercer Shields, who was a friend of my wife, and she herself, the wife of a Wake Forest physics professor, was a very fine artist. And so they got together and uh, drew sketches of the North Carolina women writers and it's amazing how many there were and if you look at that portrait downstairs you see how many first-class writers there were among North Carolina women. Well they do have, they have some great writers in this state and some have come across the border from Virginia you know like know. Lee Smith. Yeah. Well, I know <laughs> and, Lee very well. And, yeah. and I don't know, her picture mm. may be on that wall down there. I'm not oh, sure. I think it yeah, would be. Yeah, it would be. I think be. it yeah, would be. Jill, well, Jill McCorkle. We, we accept people from other states as long as they stay here. Well, there you go. Yeah. And just don't forget old R.J. Reynolds there. That's too. right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah. now I want to come back and talk about <clears throat> you. You have done so much. I want to mention <clears throat> a couple of names to you. Maya Angelou. Talk a little bit about your uh, relationship with Maya Angelou. Well, the story of Maya Angelou and Wake Forest is very appealing to me. She came here one time for a lecture, as she did to many campuses and she was already beginning to be rather famous. And something happened between Maya Angelou and Wake Forest. We liked her, and she liked us, surprisingly. I can't account for it that it was something in the chemistry of Wake Forest that she liked, even though it was a southern school far away from places she had lived. So a year or two after she had been here for her first appearance, we decided that we would like to offer her a position on the faculty, not knowing how it would turn out. And we did offer her the place, and she accepted it, and she came here and stayed for more than 30 years. She made her home here. And even as she became more and more famous doing the inaugural poem for Bill Clinton and all the books that she wrote, even as she became famous, she wanted to stay here because she loved it here. She made friends. She felt comfortable. She felt free. And also, I do think that Maya, obviously she had been very aggressive in the civil rights movement. She wanted to bring whites and blacks together. And she thought that the environment of Wake Forest was a good place for that to happen. And it was very... Uh, 
prophetic, I think, almost, that she might have gone anywhere, but she was here, and we became her friends. Well, that's a beautiful story, and I know she loved this place, and I know that at her service you spoke. And yes. uh, many of uh, our listeners out there, I'm sure, saw that, and it was a very touching service. And yes, Maya Angelou, uh, quite a woman, a phenomenal woman. Yes, uh, love her poetry. She said. And I want to get back to you now. We were, we're talking with Edwin Wilson, Mr. Wake Forest, on Poets and Writers today. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, World War I poetry. Uh, he's done so much, and that's why we're maneuvering around here today. But I, let's get you to read. He, I've heard him read on his poem, the poems about World War I. My father, you know, was in World War I. He was 58 when I was born. Oh. And so... Uh, uh, he met my mother at a train station there in Johnson City, Tennessee. He was from Boston. So anyway, let's get you to read a couple of poems about World War I. We're listening to Edwin Wilson today on Poets and Writers. I should explain that I don't pretend to be an authority on the poetry of World War I. The reason I read some of these poems is that Sydney Methodist Church wanted to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I in 1914. And they came to me because I teach poetry. And they said, would you mind preparing a program on the poets of World War I? And I said, well, it's not my department, but I'll be glad to try. And so I did go there, and I did read some of the poems of the Great War. One that I felt particularly happy to read was a poem written by William Butler Yeats, whom I have taught. And one of Yeats's dear friends, Robert Gregory, who was in the family of Lady Augusta Gregory, who was Yeats's closest friend almost, he went to fight for Ireland, so to speak, uh, or England, so to speak, during World War I, and he died uh, in Europe. And the poem that Yeats wrote is called An Irish Airman Foresees His Death. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. My country is Kiltartan Cross. My countrymen, Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men, nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath. A waste of breath, the years behind in balance with this life, this death. William Butler Yeats, yes. writing about World War I, and I have beautiful, you're listening to uh, Edwin Wilson today, Mr. Wake Forest on Poets and Writers. That's, that's very beautiful, and that's a little kind of like what we were talking about, what, what causes war, or yes. what, what motivates people to go yes. to war. One of the fascinating things about that poem is that the people of Ireland were not exactly friendly to the cause of England. And so they perhaps felt about as much sympathy 
for the other side as they did for England. Nonetheless, this Irish young man wanted to fly. Mainly he wanted to fly, I think. Well, there you go. When you talk about the Irish, you know, my last name is McCarthy, and my people come from County Cork. And so, well, you're the right person <laughs> to understand So that. my dad, who who fought yeah. for the British, you know, fought in uh, World War One, and then tried to get back in World War II. Yeah. And I will share this, and I don't mean to be off color here, but he... He fought for the English, but he also once in a while would refer to them as the dirty English because of the history in Ireland and the repression there. Oh, I believe there. that. So, uh, well, what, what England did to Ireland over many centuries is not to be forgotten. Exactly. Well, it's a pleasure talking. We could talk mm. about so many things. And I, again, I want to come back. At, what do you think, your, your great teacher, uh, your picture, by the way, you have your picture there at the library. I mean, that's quite an honor and, and, and uh, a sculpture, too, here in the Wake Forest Library. What, what makes, you're a great teacher and beloved, what makes a great teacher? Well, it's hard to say. I think, first of all, a teacher, in addition to knowing his subject, has to have a real enthusiasm for it, has to have a love for it. You can't go to class and simply read something from a card. You have to invade what you're teaching and put yourself into it. I think you also have to be able to try to look into the minds of the young people you're teaching and remember what they're like. And you know they're not quite like you because they're much younger. But you have to try to find things that link you and them and if you're teaching, for example, the poetry of a certain period, which might seem long, long ago, you have to look back into the poetry of that period and discover what there is about poetry that makes it last and that makes it immortal. And if you can find the immortality in a poem, then that makes it possible to transcend the generations and makes it possible for a man late in life to have contact with a 20-year-old. And I think that's absolutely necessary. We have to cross the ages and cross the generations and make them understand where we are, and we certainly have to understand where they are. Well said. Well said, Edwin Wilson, on what it takes to be a great teacher. You're listening to Poets and Writers today, and we're coming to you out of the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus. But again, you know, as I like to get on the road, and I'm here at Wake mm. Forest today talking with, with an icon, and I say that with uh, great gratitude. And uh, So one last question here is uh, my uh, excellent producer here, Richard Graves, is watching the clock, and we could talk. Uh, again, my apologies that we don't have more time because you've lived, and yes. by the way, I mentioned that, you were in high school in World War One, but you, I don't mean to talk about your age, but you, you came through, you've had many experiences uh, based on your experiences in life. That's yes. Certainly. Well, of course, I was not in high school in World War One. Right. Because that was before I was born. Exactly. I was giving you... I'm 91 years old. Well, I was I was adding about to 20 years, I guess, at one yeah. era 15, so yeah. my apologies on that. I'm not past 100 yet. Well, there you go. But you definitely, uh, I'm here in your office today. But I'm lucky to be 91. Oh, and, and staying young all the time, and again... When I uh, come to this campus and mention your name, the first thing they say is we love him. And, oh. and I don't say that, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. So 
We've been talking with you today. Any closing comments? Because we're going to have to wrap it up here today, and I hope to interview you again soon. Well, thank you. No closing comments, except that I would like to say to you, Henry, how much I would like to reciprocate your good words about me in saying some good words about you. I had not known you until a few weeks ago and had not known about your work at Emory and Henry and had not read your poems. But I knew when I talked with you and I knew when I read your poems that we were kindred spirits and that we both believe in the uh, transforming and elevating power of literature and that somehow we both believe that literature needs to invade our lives and make them richer. And you're doing that, and I hope I'm doing that, and I hope our friendship will continue. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure meeting you as well, and I, I appreciate those kind words. This is Henry McCarthy, having been interviewing, been interviewing Edwin Wilson, an icon here mm -hmm. on the Wake Forest campus. Uh, thank you for listening today. This is Henry McCarthy, Poets and Writers, saying, I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Do not be afraid to stay. We're still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. And we've been listening to Poets and Writers, Edwin Wilson. <laughs>